This is The Nexus, and I am Art Swift. On the show, I'm joined by Jonathan Allen, political correspondent for NBC News and the co-author of the number one New York Times bestseller, Shattered. We'll talk about the state of the 2020 race and answer the question, do voters only care about if they were better off than they were four years ago? I'll also talk about what I've learned in the first year of the two-year presidential campaign. And now, the Nexus. Jonathan Allen is a political reporter for NBC News and the co-author of the number one New York Times best-selling book, Shattered, Inside Hillary Clinton's Doomed Campaign, along with being the co-author of the best-selling book, HRC. John is a winner of the Dirksen and Hume Awards for his reporting on Congress and is working on a new book about the 2020 campaign. John Allen, welcome to The Nexus. Thanks for having me on. There is a book that I've had in mind as this 2020 campaign is underway titled The Gamble, Choice and Chance in the 2012 Presidential Election. It's by John Sides and Lynn Vavrick, where they talk about how the media during the 2012 election said there was something like 68 game-changing moments the media reveled in. But when all was said and done, people voted for the party they identified with and really looked at whether they were better or worse than four years ago. Are they correct? <laughs> well, I think, uh, first of all, uh, I've read the book, um, and I think that uh, John and Lynn are incredible political scientists. Uh, they did a ton of work on that, and by and large, I think they're correct. Uh, the vast majority of voters uh, know which party they prefer uh, and show up to vote for that party, you know, pretty regularly. And uh, the shift in any election cycle is among a pretty small group of voters in a pretty small set of states in terms of determining who becomes the next president. So, and by the way, that includes who shows up and who doesn't show up, as well as uh, individual voters shifting from one party to the other. So, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, a very, uh, a very, very small set of the American people deciding to show up, deciding not to show up or shifting one side to the other. But don't I always read these stories about how voter turnout in 2020 is going to be near historic highs. Is that not true? Do they not expect that? They do expect turnout to be uh, to be high in 2020. There's absolutely uh, tremendous interest uh, in the presidential campaign. The campaigns are getting more sophisticated at identifying potential voters and uh, motivating them to get to the polls. And we saw, you know, huge turnout in the 2018 midterm elections. Um, and you know, so absolutely. By the way, the population of the United States is also growing. Um, right. <laughs> so in terms of like raw turnout, uh, you know, it should, shouldn't be terribly surprising that you have more people voting. Uh, in terms of the percentage of turnout, I, you know, our politics is heated. We have, uh, you know, more sources of information on politics these days and, and in some cases misinformation or even disinformation than we've ever had before. Um, and, uh, we, you know, we have a president right now who, uh, who is, a nonstop communicator himself, uh, which I think engages a lot of people in the process, whether they're fans of his or not. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's likely we'll see huge turnout in this election. That said, um, 
there is a polarization in this country and, um, you know, the very things that bring people out to vote for one candidate also uh, tend to bring people out to vote against that candidate. Right. So, I mean, and, and you let's expand that a little bit more. I mean, what are some factors that you see maybe evergreen factors or maybe just pertinent to 2020, but what are some factors that can actually sway this election in your estimation? Well, it's interesting. We've seen, um, you know, an unusually uh, inelastic level of support for the president uh, based on the economy. That is to say, the economy has been, uh, at least at a macro level, extremely strong uh, during the Trump presidency, and that has not translated into greater approval numbers for him. Um, and so you kind of wonder if there's an economic slump, uh, whether that uh, whether that inelasticity stays, whether he's able to maintain his support even in a worse economy. Uh, or if the economy gets better, uh, whether there's some you know threshold moment that uh, that the fever breaks and he uh, and he ends up getting higher approval as a result of the economy passing some some certain threshold. So uh, you know that's one factor that typically is huge and and so far in his presidency has not been a defining one. Uh, I think that um, you know who the Democrats nominate may be a, a big factor in. Uh, uh, determining the uh, the outcome of the election. Obviously, the two candidates have something to do with that. Um, and, uh, you know, there are any number of, of issues that could come up within the next 11 months that, uh, that may uh, determine how voters feel um, on election day. It's, it's so hard uh, to predict in December of 2019 uh, what's going to be on the minds of people as they go into the voting booth in November of 2020. Yeah, no, that's that's obvious. I mean, so do you so when you're saying about how it depends on who they nominate, you know, again the the sides and Vavrick um argument was that the parties are so polarized at this point that it almost doesn't matter. Um do you agree with that part of it? I, I'm not sure that I do. I mean, I, I feel like there's a lot of difference between a, a Joe Biden and a Bernie Sanders. But if one of them become either of them become the nominee, will Democrats fall in line behind them? Well, I, I would depart from their analysis in in this way. I, uh, you know, I mean, I think the uh you know when they're looking at the 2012 election you're looking at candidates in barack obama and Mitt romney that largely represent the mainstream of their parties and the mainstream orthodoxy of their parties um and so that's an election that you would particularly think would uh you know where the candidates would be kind of magnetic for the the basic partisan impulses you know president trump is not somebody who is uh representative of what was considered traditional republican orthodoxy uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And, you know, he's extremely popular. Uh, he's sort of redefined what the Republican Party is. Um, you know, on the other hand, uh, you've got candidates that represent in the Democratic primary right now, um, you know, uh, a spectrum um, ranging from Vice President Biden, who, former Vice President Biden, who, um, you know, is more of a, an establishment candidate seen as a moderate, perhaps having um, uh, perhaps having uh, some appeal to 
um, for lack of a better term, working class white males who are part of the Trump coalition, um, you know, all the way to, to Bernie Sanders, who's, um, you know, on the left side of the party with, you know, in between, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg and, uh, and, you know, several other candidates, uh, Amy Klobuchar, who are still in the race. Um, and so, I, you know, I, mean, I think it does depend a little bit. Then I also think that it does, you know, we tend to think about these things in or talk about them in policy terms a lot. But uh, I think the candidates also matter in terms of personality and style a lot. Uh, I think voters tend to be attracted to candidates that they like, for lack of a better term. And it's hard to always identify exactly what the reasons are for that. But often it's not, you know, specifically tied to a policy. Often they're the voters decision to uh, support a policy that a candidate likes is, uh, I think, follows uh, the voters' gut instinct about a candidate. And so, you know, which candidate gets nominated and their ability to compete for voters who may be persuadable or to energize voters on their own side uh, or perhaps, uh, you know, make the right points to um, to rob energy from the other side or enthusiasm from the other side, uh, that may well be dependent on who gets nominated. I mean, one thing I've noticed is that when this campaign really got going, like around April, the ranking of Democrats, like in terms of um, popularity in the race, has essentially stayed the same. I mean, yes, Buttigieg came out of nowhere from a year ago, but back in the spring, he was in the high single digits, and that's where he's at now. Uh, Warren had her run and then retreated. What do you make of that, this kind of consistency? Um, you know, I, I think it means that the democratic party is, you know, not exactly sure or monolithic about, you know, what it wants to be. Um, I think that there's some hesitation about each of the four leading candidates. Uh, you know, Buttigieg is probably the least well-known, meaning he's got the most opportunity to still sort of introduce himself to the electorate. I mean, we see in uh, poll after poll that uh, his favorable and unfavorable ratings leave a lot of people uh, saying that they don't know enough about him to form a judgment. So there's a, you know, certainly room for him to grow, uh, probably less room for Biden to grow in that way and that most people are familiar with him. And yet, uh, you know, he's at the top of the pile and, and you know, pretty much every national poll. Um, it, it's hard to see what that breakout moment is, but we also haven't seen any voting yet. And you know, victory tends to be its own momentum builder for candidates. If you start to see a candidate winning in uh, Iowa and New Hampshire and South Carolina and Nevada, uh, that may be something that, that changes the dynamics a little bit. Um, you know, we've seen uh, New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg get in the race and suddenly start popping up a little bit in the, uh, in the opinion polls. We've seen Amy Klobuchar get a little bounce in Iowa lately. Um, but, but you're right. The, the race has largely been static through, through its first year. Yeah. I mean, is it possible that the, though, and you said no one's voted yet. Is it possible that the polls are getting everything wrong? Sure. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I, uh, yeah, I, I do think that most, most voters haven't, uh, haven't, you know, crystallized their their thoughts on these candidates yet. I think they're, or, or at least put it this way, I think that most Democratic voters are open to voting for someone other than their first choice right now. 
And so it, I think it's uh, dangerous to make an assumption that uh, that the polls as they look today are going to be what the polls look like, you know, two months from now. Um, I think it's always dangerous to look at polls and uh, assume that they are the way that the first state, Iowa, which does caucuses, um, are you know necessarily going to project out that way, especially because Iowa has uh, you know multi-round voting uh, in its caucuses. So um, you know it's, uh, there's a lot left to be determined. Yeah, no question about it. I mean, I wish I could give you a crystal ball. Uh, no uh, view of what's going to happen, um, but. <laughs> But sadly, my predictive powers are, are much uh, much worse than my hindsight powers. <laughs> well, I, I only said that because, you know, I still think there's a fair amount of um, concern about polls. And I don't want to get too far on, afield on that. But, but you know, there there is a sense that um, it, it, polling got things wrong in the 2016 election. So why should we even listen to any of them in 2020, which is an unfair assessment in certain ways. And then in other ways, it's not, especially with some of these state polls. So I just feel like um, things could go haywire from what the narrative is very easily. I think, yeah, I think it's important to remember that when you're looking at a poll, it is a, a couple of things. It's a snapshot. Um, it is uh, only as good as the model that it's built on. Yeah. Um, and that it has a range of possibilities. I mean, all of these polls have margins of error. So if you see a candidate winning, uh, you know, winning in a state by two points, but the margin of error is five, um, you know, there are a lot of different outcomes within uh, within that possibility there. And so, uh, you know, a candidate who's seen as winning a state by two but loses by two, if the margin of error in the poll was five, the poll was actually accurate um, in terms of uh, in terms of what the science of polling says. So uh, a lot. But the narrative, as you as you alluded to, is, um, you know, often set by people looking at the two point margin for a candidate going into election day and saying, well, that candidate's supposed to win that state. Um, and we get carried away, you know, in my business, we get carried away and certainly voters get carried away with, uh, you know, looking at, at polls as, um, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, secret scroll that's been handed down, uh, <laughs> from, <laughs> from heaven or something. And it's supposed to be, uh, sacrosanct and, and perfect. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, yeah, no, no question about it. Um, when we drill down a little bit on some of these candidates, I, I have to wonder, how are Cory Booker and Julian Castro still holding on? I mean, are they delusional at this point or do they see something that the media hasn't picked up on? Well, you know, you're, you're able to keep running as a candidate until the plane doesn't fly. <laughs> that is to say, so, so you don't have money to to put uh, to put into to jet fuel, um, and uh, you know there's always the possibility that you will have some opportunity that, uh, that surprises folks. Uh, if you're William Castro, maybe that's that you hang around until Texas and and you hope to get some delegates out of that, or or the Nevada caucuses, which are um, you know, the third state on the, I mean, I assume if you're Castro, you're looking to the Nevada caucuses, which are the first state with a heavily Latino, uh, electorate. And you're hoping that you get a little bit of a bounce from that. 
Um, if you're Cory Booker, you're, you've seen a few polls lately that have you around that 4% margin that would get you into the next debate, even though you're not uh, scheduled to be on the, the, you know, the debate stage right now. Um, and you're hoping to catch fire somewhere. Um, but, uh, but it, you know, we've seen uh, incredible comebacks in politics before. I, uh, you know, it's not the, I don't think it's the job of the media to tell candidates when they should get in or out of races. So I'm certainly not going to be the person to do that. Right. No, no, I understand that. Um, you know, shifting gears a second. I mean, in hindsight, what are, some of your favorite moments from Shattered, your bestseller about Hillary Clinton. And, and do you ever get pushback or feedback anymore from the Clinton people? Um, well, I, you know, my, I think my favorite, <laughs> I guess, favorite is a tough way to look at it, but I, the, the part of the book that I think is, uh, perhaps the uh, most engaging, or at least I've been told is the most engaging, is um, uh, the chapter on election night, uh, mm-hmm. you know, inside uh, Hillary Clinton's hotel suite. Um, and the, uh, the story of her, uh, her finding out, you know, that things aren't looking good and, and ultimately that she's going to lose and uh, sort of dealing with that and also, you know, understanding how close it is and trying to make a determination about, uh, about when to concede and how to concede and the exchanges that she and her campaign had with the white house and she directly with president Obama and with, uh, with president elect Trump, um, I think is a, I think there's sort of a, you know, a powerful, you know, inside the room narrative there about, uh, you know, what really happens um, at the end of a campaign and, you know, for somebody who, uh, you know, really in a lot of ways, um, you know, had a just sort of a, a, a very human um, and powerful uh, reaction to, you know, watching as, you know, not only was she let down, but you know, the, from her perspective, the, you know, the country was let down and, you know, President Obama was let down and her party was let down. And there's just a, you know, sort of a, a heaviness to it. And, you know, a lot of people told me that it's very difficult to read, but it's also very, um, very poignant and very powerful. And so, um, you know, the, the writing of that, the reporting on that, the writing of it and the feedback that Amy and I have gotten on that chapter in particular is one that, um, you know, uh, I look at that as having been, you know, having been part of the history that is, you know, otherwise untold without, without our book. Right. And I mean, d- about the, the Clinton folks, I mean, did you ever get response from, and when I say folks, I mean, did you ever hear from uh, uh, the reaction of Hillary Clinton herself or President Clinton, or was it just people who were more, you know, lower level? Well, I don't want to talk too specifically about all the conversations Amy and I have, but, uh, you know, we, um, you know, there was some public reaction uh, from the Clinton campaign folks um, that they felt like uh, their campaign was in a better mood, um, you know, that it wasn't as uh, riven with, um, with uh, divisions as we had described it. 
though we stand by our reporting and we had a lot of reporting on some of those divisions. Um, and, uh, but, you know, we still are in, you know, still in contact with a lot of the same people that worked on that campaign and have maintained good relationships, you know, source relationships with uh, a lot of the same people. Um, you know, the, the book was, uh, obviously there were people outside the Clinton campaign that we spoke to talk, you know, there, there's a lot about the Sanders campaign. There's a lot about the Trump campaign in the book. Um, but you know, the, the foundation of the book is, is interviews with people in the Clinton campaign. Um, and so the book is not, you know, the story that, uh, of, of Amy and John, you know, the writers, it's the story told by the people who worked on the campaign. Um, you know, it's our, our writing, but, um, you know, those were the sources for, for the book. And so most of the people who read it, who were on the campaign knew what happened on the campaign. And in some cases they learned about what was going on in other parts of the campaign that they weren't working on. Cause obviously we had the ability to talk to a lot of people who were in different departments and things like that. But, uh, you know, a lot of the reaction that we've gotten was, uh, you know, was either, yeah, you, you nailed it or, uh, or, you know, Oh, I didn't know that's what was going on over in that department. That explains a lot. Right. I mean, it was, in my opinion, the definitive book about the uh, campaign, and you were really um, fortunate to get it out as soon as you did because that did set the tone, I think, for the analysis, the post-analysis, certainly, of the, <laughs> of the race. You, you, say, you say fortunate. Amy and I felt uh, overwhelmed to get it out as soon as we did after the election. <laughs> <laughs> it was a tight turnaround. It was. And I mean, but if I recall, because I also, I'm, I'm friends with Amy Parnes, your, your co-author, and she had told me that you were essentially writing that book as it was happening. Like, I think a lot of people would assume that the campaign happened and then you went and wrote a book. But for the most part, you were actually writing it while it was ongoing. Is that correct? That's right. Um, you know, our approach is to do uh, do the reporting as the campaign's going along, and then you know you're you're basically writing while it's happening. Um, you know, a little you're trailing a little bit. That is to say, um, uh, you know, it's not like a debate would happen, and you know that night we write the chapter on that debate. Uh, but you're you're reporting on that debate, and you know maybe that weekend you're you know writing a story about something that happened you know a month or two earlier that you already did a lot of the reporting on so you're basically writing the book as the campaign's going and doing the reporting at the same time and as we wind up i mean just a a natural follow-through from that um what's the new book going to be about i mean and does it matter that people like kamala harris have dropped out of the race at this point um, the, the new book will be a postmortem on the 2020 campaign. Um, and, uh, so we don't know yet what the title will be or <laughs> who the winner will be. Um, and yeah, it does matter that, uh, the candidates have dropped out. Um, and you know, that some of them are bigger parts of the story and some of them will be smaller parts of the story. Um, and you know, uh, and some of them may resurface. Uh, at a later date. <laughs> oh, as as vice presidential candidates, I'm guessing. 
Um, sure. Or, you know, people who may have the ability to uh, sway delegates later on or be surrogates on the campaign trail uh, or vote in an impeachment uh, trial in the Senate. Uh, there's a, I mean, there are a lot of uh, different ways that some of these characters may uh, wind themselves back into the story as it, uh, as it unfolds. Interesting. Interesting. Um, well, that's, that's something obviously we should be looking out for in you know, a little over a year, year and a half's time, I'm guessing. Um, well, you can find Jonathan Allen on NBC News, MSNBC, and NBCNews.com. Thank you very much, John Allen, for joining me in the Nexus. My pleasure. Anytime. And we will be right back. We've made it through the first year of the two-year campaign. Since the last two years of any president's term has to be now devoted to campaigning, this is the life we live in the United States. You all know this is not the way it used to be, just like Congress members used to be collegial and a milkman delivered milk to your doorstep. Regardless, it's the country we live in now, so we have to make the best of it. Here's what I learned during the 2019 portion of the 2020 presidential race. Those who are in the lead at or near the beginning are still in the lead. When polls started to come out, Joe Biden was at the top, and he's still at the top. Bernie Sanders was in second, and he's still in second. Before she got hemmed up in her DNA Native American video controversy, Elizabeth Warren was in third. Sure, Warren was the frontrunner for one day, October 9th to be exact, according to an aggregate of polls, but that was short-lived, and she's back in third. Donald Trump getting elected really changed everything. For one thing, because he didn't have any political experience, nor did he have the commensurate experience of being a general or admiral in the U.S. military, now truly anyone thinks they could be president. From sea to shining sea, Trump's election meant Mayor Pete Buttigieg, the chief executive of Indiana's fourth largest city, not only believes he's ready for president, but also 8% of the Democratic electorate believes so too. Even more when you look at states like Iowa and New Hampshire, is this right? Personally, I think you need more experience, but it's an observation that is undeniable in 2019. Andrew Yang has even less experience than Mayor Pete, and he's found his niche. What I've learned is entertainment is the name of the game now. If you could deliver a slick speech or promise free giveaways like a thousand bucks a month, you're going to get attention. Trump making it through three years in office and the sky not literally falling validates him in ways we haven't fully absorbed yet. About those free giveaways, in 2019, the tendencies conservatives have railed against about regarding Democrats coming to the forefront, candidates talked about decriminalizing the southern border, taking away certain guns, providing free health care to illegal or undocumented immigrants. At first, these policy ideas looked like they were going to dominate the Democratic platform next year, but by the fall, a more moderate viewpoint prevailed among Democratic voters than not. Will that swing back in 2020? Unlikely, since candidates like Julian Castro and Cory Booker are effectively out of the race, even if they are still hanging in there technically. We all know the jig is up for them. Identity politics don't matter so much anymore. As the year began, it appeared like the intensity of electing a woman or black person or Latino just for that sake alone was going to carry the day. 
And while we had a historically diverse slate of candidates, which everyone should be proud of, it's fascinating that black voters have gravitated to an old white man. Kamala Harris and Cory Booker assumed because they were black that black voters would automatically vote for them just for the color of their skin. Instead, they liked the record of accomplishment Joe Biden has delivered in his storied career. To me, that's progress. The content of their character, not just the color of their skin. As long as the needs of minorities and underprivileged are being met, doesn't matter who the champion is or what their age is. Money still matters, and it could buy your way into a presidential race. Tom Steyer has been spending tens of millions of his own money, and it's worked. He's accumulated a few points and has made it into multiple debates. Mike Bloomberg got into the race ridiculously late and almost overnight is at 5 to 7% nationally. He's reportedly spent $120 million as of this podcast. As Bloomberg showed in New York City in 2001 when he first ran for mayor, as someone with no political experience, people will respond to advertising if they like the message and they see or hear it enough. We have this myth that voters are so smart and can withstand a barrage of ads. Maybe some can, but a lot can be swayed. Will that be enough for Bloomberg or Steyer to leapfrog over the rest of the other candidates? We'll know in about three months' time. And that's our show. The Nexus is recorded in Washington and produced by Colin Martin. Production assistance by Ian Heald. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share it far and wide. We'll see you next time. Happy New Year and be well. Be well.